Today on episode number 391 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, authors Carolyn Zender, Cynthia Albee, Julia Metzger, and Karen Klein join me to talk about their book, Learning That Matters. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Karen. Carolyn, Cynthia, and Julia, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you. Happy to be here. Thank you so much. We're doing something a little bit different this time. And rather than me going through your bios, we think it'll be a little bit more interesting to have you introduce yourselves. And we're also going to have each of you share a little bit about why it's been important to you to align your teaching with your values. So let's begin with Cynthia. What can you tell us about yourself, Cynthia? Well, I am a professor of teacher education at Georgia College, and I also have worked for the past 20 years with the um, state of Georgia's Governor's Teaching Fellows Program, which has been one of the highlights of my life. And I have a sheep farm where I raise a critically endangered breed of sheep. Yes, there there are going to be some animal surprises in today's episode. I just I don't want to spoil anything, but that has been one of the delights of getting to know you all. So, Cynthia, tell us a little bit about why it has been important to you to align your values with your teaching. I think the, that what it's really done for me is it's helped me better see the meaning in what I'm doing and helped me discover better my own purpose. And because of those two things, it has brought so much more joy to my work Mm. um, to feel like my work is aligned with my values. I certainly have friends whose work is not aligned with with their values and my heart just breaks for them. Karen, tell us a little bit about you. Uh, I'm going to sound like I'm copying Cynthia, except I have nothing to do with sheep other than visit hers on occasion. But I also am a professor of teacher education. And my background mostly is in STEM disciplines, sorts of things. And yeah, and uh, we've both been at the same institution now for decades. So what's been something that you've done to align your teaching with your values over these years? Something that I have done is to really take stock of what is important to me and I give you an example of something that I've, I've changed on because I realize how important family is to me. And so I am always in, in, in my teaching trying to bring the cohort, not to make a family, but to make a collective. And I just know how, you know, how important that is to me that I believe that others benefit from that as well. So I don't try to teach to individuals. I try to teach to, we are a group. We are a collective. Mm. And tell me your distinction between, uh, some people use that phrase, we're like a family. And that just candidly, I'm sure it's 
Mm-hmm. Partially because I have a lot of baggage here, but I'm like, ah, no, this is not a family. So, so tell me a little bit about that distinction, because because you, I, well, please. because I think a family is is there's a certain sort of uh, reverence to having a family, and I don't want to force that on people. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I do think that we can consider others and their humanity and how important they are to our development, and so. That is the focus I'm trying to get in there. Not that we need to, I don't know, re- spend our time reminiscing, but rather that we can um, we can put ourselves in others' shoes and really make things better for them by how we live our lives. Mm, thank you so much. Carolyn, tell mm-hmm. us a little bit about yourself. I am a senior lecturer in biology at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, though my roots go back to Georgia College, where this is you know where our, our collaborations began many years ago. And yeah, my, my animal connection is uh, I'm the bird watcher of the group. So, <laughs> so that is, uh, yeah, in, in terms of my, uh, my, my animal connection. And do you ever participate in those, those bird watching I don't I forgot what they're called but they've talked about it before on the show where you go and participate in a survey and and you know how like, ca- like counting the Christmas birds. bird count counting birds yes that's what it is. <laughs> yes uh, I'm married into a family of birders and so we've actually done that over the holidays as as a family event <laughs> oh that sounds lovely Carolyn and tell us a little bit for you about how you have approached connecting your values with your teaching so when you ask that question, I've thought a lot about my change as, a, as an educator and my identity, thinking about bringing more compassion into the classroom, which I think when I started out, and maybe it was maybe it's my, my science background, and it's something um, we've all talked about, that we were almost schooled in, you know, they, you had to be strict and you had to be really like deadlines and guidelines were really important and to be, in, to be flexible would be showing weakness. And now recognizing that if if I want to bring my whole self to the classroom and ask students to take risks and learn, then I need to really, you know, bring my, like, if I value that compassion and value that idea of treating everybody um, with dignity and respect, then I need to, like, you know, over the years had to look really hard at some of those preconceived notions I had about teaching and and change those to better align with my values. Mm. Yeah, thank you so much. And Julia, how about you? Tell us a little bit about you. And also tell us about your unique spelling of your first name, too. Uh, so uh, I currently am the director of the Washington Center for Improving Undergraduate Education, which is a, a national resource center for two and four year colleges. And what we do is we um, help teams orchestrate change initiatives at their institutions. And the unique spelling of my name really comes from the fact that I'm a little particular about the fact that I'm a Julia and not a Julie. And so I started putting that capital A on the end of it. And then I just really grew to like the way it looks. There's a symmetry in it that makes me really happy. So 
And I was going to say in terms of my career shift, which is related to the values question. So I, like all the others here, started um, teaching at Georgia College. Um, I was in my background, disciplinary background is in chemistry and was so fortunate to find this group of faculty. And we started this grassroots faculty development network that we called the Innovative Course Building Group. And through that process of challenging a lot of what I just adopted assumptions of being a scientist that Carolyn sort of mentioned, which the idea of objectivity being something that one could achieve and should demonstrate all of the time and trying to reconcile that with my own undergraduate degree, which was at Evergreen State College, which is an integrated holistic sort of curriculum. I was, I was always finding a tension between the objectivity and the integration. And so it was, it's, it was constantly a little bit of a value for me, a, a problem for me. And I think the values orientation really helped me kind of navigate those two things and find my own space in that world, which is at just asking myself what matters to me and why, and am I living that in my teaching? Mm. And you also have some animal connections too. Would you like to share those before we go Yes, on? I do. It's funny because I'm looking at some chickens out the window right now. Um, we raise both bees and chickens. And uh, we recently moved across the country uh, from Florida to Washington. And so now we have a whole new group of bees and chickens <laughs> at our little mini homestead. Oh my goodness. This is just great. I love all of your connections, both the values that you share, the connections that you've made over these years, and the occasional animal connection is fun too. So <laughs> let's start out with Julia. I'd like to begin by asking you, when you've gone through a process of determining who your students are, that you'll be designing a course for, what have been either some of the surprises or some of the challenges that have arisen in that endeavor? I really uh, love this question because I think that it's such an important starting point for thinking about what are the choices that you're going to make when you're designing a course. And I think for me, the, the thing that surprises me and challenges me the most is trying to reconcile the biases that I hold or even bring those to the surface so that I know what it is that I am thinking about who these students are and kind of correlate that with whatever data and evidence that we have available to us. And so one of the things that I really try to do in my own teaching and also when I work with faculty is to pull as much data about the students at their institution. And that's where I find a lot of surprises. For example, I've worked with um, faculty who are surprised to learn that most of their students transferred into the institution and didn't start there from, from start as freshmen. So I think that that's where I see a lot of the surprise and it's a lot of challenge, but it's really fun also to think about, well, now that I know that most of my students are transfers and they're commuting, what can I do to design for students in that kind of a context? You just described this so well. And, and it's not, to me, it's been another tension where I yearn to continue to know more about the learners that I may find myself privilege to be able to walk alongside. And yet you talked about recognizing the biases that may be there. So 
just as I mean, this is probably an overly simplistic thing, but if I knew that it's more likely that I would have transfer students, that's helpful information to know. It's also helpful to recognize I could be wrong. <laughs> like the data, the data could bring along with it some assumptions I may make that either may not be true for a particular learner or may not, in fact, be true even if someone does check the box in that they're a transfer student. So I really appreciate what you said about about, you know, important information to have and yet also important to know and become continuing and to continue to be aware of the biases that we hold. All right, Cynthia, you are up next. So we're getting to, we've looked a little bit about designing for the learners that we might be working with and, and designing courses for. Let's talk then about syllabi. So you've talked a little bit about ways that we might be able to express our aspirations for a class and also to be invitational in our syllabus. Would you talk about some examples of how that might work? Yes, the, over the years, it's really changed for me. There was a time a decade or two ago where I was able to do a lot with my syllabus. And then over the years, more and more, we were just told, you know, cut and paste this verbiage right into your syllabus. Um, so I do make some real strong attempts to change some of the language of my syllabus, for example, using the term uh, student hours as opposed to office hours, things like that. But I've also gotten into the habit of providing a syllabus letter that goes along with the syllabus, because that's where I feel like I can really say what I need to say just right up front. You know, I can send some subtle messages. I want students to know that I care about them as a person and a, as a learner. I like for them to know that I know my subject well and I'm passionate about it and I'm good at helping people learn it because I think that helps students feel a little more safe. I like to send the message, you belong in this course. I love having the opportunity through a letter to say, let me tell you about how I hope you will be different as a result of taking this course and what I hope you will be able to do with what you learn here years from now. And of course, I just really want them to know why I love to teach that particular course. And then, of course, there are things I do that are somewhat unconventional. And so I like to also have the opportunity to introduce those. For example, something I learned on this very podcast was about ungrading. I'm now passionate about ungrading. And um, again, a syllabus letter gives me a place to begin to introduce that. Yeah, I've also changed my mind a lot about syllabi. And in fact, I think I'm probably never going to stop changing my mind about it. But I, you know, I, I don't like to talk very often about I used to be in corporate training, and it feels like, like a thing you shouldn't admit <laughs> to thousands of people. But, but I mean, so corporate training, one of the things that we used to talk a lot about is just in time training. And you know, that can kind of sound cheesy. But I think about that a lot when it comes to the syllabus and how many times we say, go back and read the syllabus and get mad at people. Well, how many of you can hang on to things in your brain, you know, all of that up there until just the moment you need them, and then to send people back to some document that they haven't seen in weeks. So I do try to break it down. And, and I, I now try to think of it more as that invitation, yet also recognizing that understandably, there are some constraints that need to be made in an institution in order to maintain one's accreditation and things like that, that that they can't expect those people who are 
evaluating those things to dig all the way down. So trying to find a happy medium and, and also to have some happy surprises. And I really do appreciate your use of the word invitation as opposed to all of these, you know, rules and regulations and do's and don'ts and all of that. I just wanted to uh, chime in there and say, one, I just wrote my first letter to students this semester precisely because that's what Cynthia does. And, uh, and, and it's so helpful. And then when you were just talking about syllabus, for me, what's so constraining about a syllabus is having to say, 14 weeks in advance, I know exactly where we are going to be and what we are going to need to be doing. And that is so, so annoying. So also in the letter, I'm able to put, and this is pretty tentative. Mm -hmm. You know, I won't do anything that I think will harm you. But on the other hand, I might change a due date if I think we are not there yet or whatever. So I. I just wanted to add that I've learned, well, I've learned from all of my colleagues here and also from your your podcast, but specifically, I feel empowered because of them to make these changes. Thanks, Karen. And actually, this next question is for you. What mm-hmm. has been some of the most important work that you've done around reflection as an educator? Probably, I mean, I, I think... If I have to say that there is one thing I want to have people come out of a course with learners to come out, it is a greater capacity for reflection, because I do not think that is a something that you just use in your courses. I think it is a way of being. And so probably for me, it was recognizing so going back to Dewey and always going back to John Dewey and seeing like, oh my gosh, this is at the heart of being human. Reflection is to me. And, and I'm grateful that I have that capacity. So probably for me, it's, it's not one occasion. It's every occasion where I'm interacting with, because I'm a teacher educator, saying, if you only have one tool as a teacher, this is the one you need because all the others fall around it. And so, yeah, I would just say it's for me every time I work with learners, trying to get them to embrace how valuable it will be when they can reflect on things they never thought were important. Oh, thanks. Cynthia, how about you? I was just thinking about how, when we were writing the book, how incredibly important the concept of reflection was for us, so much so that every chapter we ask people to do a, a preflection, and at the end we have ways for them to reflect on what they just read, and that the whole book, we were trying the whole time to um, convince people to read this book with someone else so that the two of you can reflect together because there is such a joy in, in sharing reflections. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm so reminded as you're both sharing these examples of way back when I'm, I'm teaching a class I've taught many times now, it's called Personal Leadership and Productivity. And I remember so vividly some six or seven years ago, having a guest speaker come in and one of the students in the class asking, hey, what does it take to be successful? And the guest speaker said, 
well, what is success to you? And there was the longest, most glorious pause. And he said, I don't know. He said, well, it's pretty hard to be successful if you don't know what it looks like. He wasn't making fun of him at all. It was it was mm-hmm. such a powerful moment and one that I, I know that student remembered for many years to come. And I just find that to be just such a powerful thing. And so just like you've talked about weaving that in and maybe trying to anticipate the kinds of questions that people might have. I mean, even we talk about things like exam wrappers of you know, how did that go for you? What kind of studying did you do? Do you see any opportunities and that and that kind of thing? That to me has been incredibly, as an educator, incredibly revealing. Just to go, first of all, not to take myself too seriously. Like maybe they didn't do well on a test because they don't care, and maybe that's okay. You know, I mean, just just all of this, but but to find out then where there are disconnects of like, wow, I really worked hard at this. I suspected, I predicted that this was going to go well, versus no, I didn't do well, and there was other stuff going on in my life, and or it, it's just and, and to try to be open and transparent about. That being okay, I don't take myself that seriously or my classes that seriously and try to be very transparent about, I know you have a whole life that's out there. But also part of that for me is helping them do that reflection because then it doesn't put too great of a burden on me. Mm-hmm. Like I've somehow failed if that, you know, if it, so it's, it's, I think it's you know, these kinds of activities are, they never really go to waste, do they? So Julia, you've got something to add. Yeah, just really quickly, I wanted to add that I think that for me, the really critical thing is carving out the time to do reflective writing as a practice, right? And noticing that when I'm not spending time doing that, I'm getting into like a place where I'm not being intentional about the things that I want to do. And so, and also, I think it's really important to help students create that practice of reflective writing as well. Yeah. And Carolyn, my next question is going to be for you. But before we do that, I just wanted to say, Julia, that sometimes I feel guilty that I don't do enough of that. I've had people on prior episodes talk about journaling after every class and kind of having some sort of a scale that they use to to capture those reflections. And, you know, I haven't always made time for doing that. But what I do is I've always got it in my task manager when things didn't go well and I want to tweak them, now is not the time to tweak them. So I'll just make I'll I'll just make a quick note and I'll I'll have the number of the assignment. Is that an M2.3 or whatever? And then here's what I wanted to change. And any sort of notations about what needed additional clarification or what yeah, I need to update the rubric. Occasionally I'll miss. I changed the number of points that the assignment had, but the rubric didn't reflect that. And obviously it'll calculate that but ideally the things would match you know things like that so that's um that to me I want to be more forgiving of myself and gentle with myself and say that is a form of reflection that you Mm -hmm. are doing and no you're not writing it all out and sometimes it can be really good to do that but you know you are capturing those little nuggets that will help continue to be able to serve people's needs better so all right Carolyn Tell us, this is actually a perfect segue into this question. (laughs) How do you approach change in your teaching? Wow, I think so many of us have had so much change in our teaching over (laughs) the past two years. Wow. So ideally, um, and I think, and I've gotten definitely better at this over the years, as I think, you know, working working with my wonderful, wonderful friends here and learning more about, you know, 
I have a habit of sometimes making like making a change, making decisions a little too quickly, you know, replying to that email maybe a little too soon when I should have let things simmer. And so now when I think about changes to my teaching, really thinking about, okay, what's the purpose of this change? What is, you know, how does it align with what I'm hoping to do in this course, what I hope to help students become? And then how will I know it worked? I think in the beginning of my teaching career, I didn't do as much of like figuring out, okay, how do I know if this activity, if this assessment, if this whatever was doing what I thought it did. And so now um, really thinking about, okay, I'm changing something and, and how do I know it works? It works. But also I think, you know, when you are asking that question, the change we've all gone through and trying to recognize that. And now I'm thinking about like, you know, even the teaching I'm doing like right now this semester, that even though I might know in the abstract what, you know, okay, pandemic still going on. I know that, you know, students are readjusting back to -to face-to-face that I really don't, I'm not experiencing that change in the same way that my students are. And to really have a lot more empathy and care because, that change that maybe to me felt like a little blip could have been a huge earthquake for someone else. Mm. All right, Karen, could you tell us what are connected and authentic assessments? When I think about that, the first the first thing I think about is having an you know having a goal in a course. Maybe maybe goal is a little bit too formal, but having a a strong sense of what I hope people will come away from the course with. And so for me, this idea of connected means in the assessment, I am assessing that goal. That is what I want. It's opportunities to see learners' success, my success, or lack thereof, or things like that. So connected to me means like, I can trace it all the way through. Even a formative assessment, I can see like, how is this connected to what, you know, you were aiming for, Karen? But connected to that is authentic. So I'm always wanting to know, and I'm wanting learners to be aware that they are moving toward being more and more capable. In my case, again, it's teachers. And so an authentic connected assessment is in what ways does this assessment reveal things that you know or are able to do that will help you be a more, I'll just say, successful teacher? I shy away from that word effective now because I'm like, "Mm, I don't know. It just doesn't ring ring true for me but successful i feel like oh that uh, that that's something you can feel that's something you can feel so so an example of this week something that students that i am working with and these are teachers who are already placed in the field they are in there they will next year be the teacher there but this year they are still learning and they have a partner teacher they work with And this week it was to, as part of partnering with families, ask the families, what would they need? What would they like to know about? What would help them connect to the school? What would do that? So the the assessment is 
them really talking with families about what would be useful that the pre-service teacher could offer, could bring to them. That's the assessment is, did you talk to the family? And I can tell, and it's connected because they're learning how to build partnerships. That is something I want them to be able to do. And yet I don't have to, I don't have to grade that or anything like that for both of us to sit down and talk about, well, what did you learn from doing that? Well, I learned maybe, you know, it's not as scary as I thought it was going to be. Or I learned they really do not understand the young adolescents that are their children. And I can provide them with some information. So to me, connected and authentic, they would be one and the same. And they would be assessments that will inform me and the learners about where they are and, and what they've accomplished that is so valuable. So much of what you're talking about, the challenge that I see comes in for so many is just that we tend to collectively just really veer toward the knowledge. Mm -hmm. Yet if we're so heavy, heavily weighted toward the knowledge, it's hard to have people understand the relevance for them in their lives. What if they're not planning on going to grad school and writing a whole bunch of esoteric papers? No one's going to read. Sorry, everyone. But but so <laughs> I've just found myself so much now. What is it I really want them to be able to do? Mm-hmm. What is it I really, really want them to be able to do? And and then once I have that, that's a very that's very often not a knowledge based thing. It's often a skills thing uh, in some way or, or shape or form. Now, oftentimes I have to back in to the knowledge because to do this skill, you would need to know how to do this. And then when right. it comes to the knowledge, I try to make it a little bit a little bit fun. And I know some of you have some stories to share after after my quick example is. One one of the things I had them recently being able to do is a whole bunch of little pieces that added up to something big. They need to have a getting things done system from the book that we're reading. And then they need to have a what's called a weekly review, which is something tied to you review your getting things done system or whatever. Well, you could only imagine it's, it takes an entire book to get to that end point. So sometimes there's things along the way, which is just a quick spot check. Do they know? Do they have a calendar? Is it synced mm-hmm. back and forth between the device that they have with them all the time and then the one mm-hmm. that they're in front of when they're just working on school stuff often, most often? Mm-hmm. And so I had them send me a meeting invite, a fictitious meeting invite of somewhere that they'd like to have us go together that we're not really going to go to. And I had an invite to pet someone's pet unicorn or meet someone's <laughs> pet unicorn. I had an invite to go to the moon. There was another in, there was a lot of Halloween oriented things. And it was kind mm. of funny because uh, someone I worked with who has access to my calendar thought I had been hacked because she saw that I'd been <laughs> invited to a bike ride. She's like, Bonnie does not ride bikes. <laughs> but you know, if, if we're going to have to learn stuff, you can demonstrate a skill. Why not make it fun? If not practical, obviously practical to me is number one. But they appreciate every once in a while something a little bit playful and we can continue to get to know each other a little bit. So I know, Carolyn, you had something to add to this one, too. 
No, I just, when you started to, to tell that story, it just made me think of something. And I think it was in the, one of the initial meetings I had with Julia and Karen. So they did one of the new faculty orientation workshops when I first started at Georgia College. Oh, many years ago. I won't give the exact year. And it was, you know, what do you want students to remember about your course, you know, five or 10 years from now? And I remember sitting there thinking, and I was about to like start teaching for the first time in a week. And I thought I knew what I was going to be doing. And it was like, wait, like there's all this biology knowledge that, but that's not the real important stuff. And like thinking about like, like you just said, those skills and just developing as, as, you know, human beings is, you know, I mean, way more important than the, you know, steps of, you know, cellular respiration. Yeah. The other thing I think is worth making a note about that all of this is that when our assignments are more authentic, when our assignments are more connected, it also reduces the likelihood of issues around academic integrity. So, I mean, I, I'm going to get the email with the invite to pet the pet unicorn. That'd be really hard <laughs> to be dishonest about. I know who it's coming from. I know who it's to, you know, that kind of thing. I do a lot of, you know, quick screencast recordings of them. It's their face. It's their voice. That would be really hard, you know, and, and that's not my intention. Speaking of aligning my values with my teaching, I don't go into it of like how to make sure no one ever cheats ever. But I mean, it is a nice side benefit that when we have done this, it just doesn't happen as often. I'm not saying it could never happen, but it's just going to be a little bit less likely, which I feel really good about. So, Mm -hmm. all right, Cynthia, talk to us a bit about how we might create opportunities for learners to engage when oftentimes there can be, especially when we're first meeting them, this natural and normal resistance to that kind of engagement that so many of us want to have. Yeah, I just, I think one of the most important things is ensuring that students understand why you're doing something, why you're doing anything, why you're doing everything. (laughs) Um, the, The example that springs first to mind, probably because I was teaching about it today, is uh, flipping the classroom. Um, that is something that students tend to frequently resist. Um, you know, why, why is it, why, why am I doing all the work? Isn't my professor supposed to be doing the work? And so for something like that, um, what I would really recommend is that people uh, start by asking their students, you know, like, here's what we're thinking about doing. Why do you think this might be good for your learning? And let them brainstorm some ideas and talk one another into thinking about um, why it might be valuable. And then I can follow that up with, I may seem obsessed with letters, but um, I do have a letter that I send, I give them with the first module that has a list of, you know, here's, here's what I think is great about flipping. Here's why I'm doing it. Here's how it's helpful for individuals. I think that just really makes a big difference when students know you've really thought through it and are willing to talk with them about your why. Mm -hmm. Uh, I heard an amazing episode of uh, Hidden Brain recently, that podcast, and it was called The Obstacles You Can't See. And it was such an interesting podcast um, that had a lot to do with resistance Mm -hmm. and how what we tend to want to do when students are resistant, I mean, he wasn't talking about students, but when people are resistant is to add more what he would call fuel, Mm -hmm. uh, meaning we'll try to make it sound more palatable, more likable. We'll talk about what's great about it. And that is good. 
But then we also need to address the friction. How can we make it so that a flipped classroom works easily logistically for students? How can we take obstacles out of their way when we're asking them to do, especially when we're asking them to do something new and different? How do we remove the obstacles? And how do we how do we make sure we're asking them what they're seeing as obstacles? Because often we are not very accurate at guessing what those obstacles might be. All right. Well, before we get to the recommendations segment of today's episode, I want to take just a minute to thank today's sponsor, and that is Text Expander. I have been using Text Expander for more than a decade now. It is really just a part of my computing life and a part of my productivity. I don't even really think about it that much in the sense of it just feels so integrated with everything I do on my computer. And what happens with Text Expander is it's a text expansion service. I can type a few characters that I predefine. And automatically they expand into things that are either hard to remember or are lengthy and wouldn't make sense to type over and over again. Text Expander allows me to type less and say more. Wherever it is I am typing, whatever application it is, whether it's a short sentence or a longer, more complicated, even a form, I can expand what they call shortcuts or snippets with a few keystrokes. And it's all the information that I need at my fingertips. And as I'm typing something as simple as when I type in L-I-N-K, T-I-H-E, it automatically expands into the link to the Teaching in Higher Ed website, all kinds of ways that Text Expander allows us to save time and say more without doing as much work. And this can come in with things that have common sets of language in common, like a letter of recommendation, or even just my work phone number I keep in Text Expander, and I'm continually refining it to be able to help me save time and save the time, by the way, so that I can invest it in those kinds of writing endeavors that really do require a very customized and thoughtful approach. So thanks to Text Expander for sponsoring today's episode. And if you head on over to textexpander.com slash podcast, you can find out about a special offer for our listeners, which is 20% off. And please let them know that you heard about Text Expander on Teaching in Higher Ed. All right. Well, this is the time in the show that we all get to give our recommendations and mine probably isn't that much of a surprise. I want to recommend your book. I had the opportunity to read it such a long time ago. I got to read it before it was even listed anywhere there. So it was really fun for me. And the thing that I love the most about the book, I mean, there's so many things that I do, but the thing that I love the most is just how you really do help us every page step between our values and our intentions. And then really in very practical ways, have us live up to those. And I, I think sometimes we think that that's simple to do. I'm, I'm going to be giving a talk tomorrow. And one of the things I'll be talking about is mental health. And it's just a small part of it, but it can be it can feel so overwhelming. I mean, you mentioned earlier, Carolyn, I think it was, you know, we're not out of this pandemic yet. And so we're just exposed to so many students that are going through such difficult things. And so it can feel just this weight on our shoulders, our values. We care. You know, we want to do so well, but it feels like. But then how do I do that? And so one of the past guests on the podcast said, don't set assignments to be due at midnight. 
Mm. Set them at five or six or seven or eight. And so then you what you do so well throughout the whole book is take our our ideals, our values, things that we care so much, but also things that can feel like a burden. And then it's okay. Have you thought about this? And then here's some really practical, tangible steps that you can take. It's it's really a brilliant balance between those things. So that's my recommendation is that people get themselves a copy of Learning That Matters, the book we've been talking about uh, all this time. And um, Carolyn, I'm going to pass it over to you for your recommendation. Well, thank you. And thank you for those wonderfully kind words. So I have two short recommendations. The first is the Binti Trilogy by uh, Nettie Okorafor. Um, it's, it's a, it's a sci-fi fantasy Afrofuturism. And so the, and the reason I'm recommending it for folks interested in higher ed is because the premise of the first book is that the main character, Binti, is, you know, leaving to go away to university on another planet. And I really loved the story of like thinking about how much some of our, you know, sometimes we, our students are making such big changes and giving up so much when we invite them to campus and this putting it in outer space and thinking about it like worlds apart literally was really cool and now that I too am commuting back and forth to work and keep picking up my daughter sometimes I've been listening to podcasts a lot more and another podcast in addition to this one of course is that I've been listening to is Abolition Science Radio it's a podcast by Latoya Strong and Atasi Das, and they explore some of the inequities associated with science and STEM fields and interrogate ways to and interrogate those fields and, and look at ways to creatively really reimagine better futures for us all. Mm, thank you so much. All right, next up we have Cynthia. What do you have to recommend today? I am going to recommend the um, website that goes along with our book. The Probably the, the part that people are going to like the most is um, the tab that's called resources, because I know it can be very hard to find fantastic resources but the four of us, I mean, that's our passion where we really try hard to keep up with what's happening. And so we're able to, to curate for people. And I think we've done an excellent job um, curating around some, some great resources around equity. Um, we talked earlier about the syllabus letter. So, for example, if you want to see examples of, a, of syllabus letters, they're there. Ultra practical. So people who are in the mood for ultra practical, come see the website. You don't even need to, to buy the book to enjoy the website. Oh, thank you so much, Cynthia. And Julia, how about you? What do you have to recommend? I am actually going to recommend a book. And it is, uh, I think, fitting because in our book, we, we actually close each chapter with a set of recommendations. And this is the final recommendation in the final chapter. And it's um, Emergent Strategy by Adrian Marie Brown. And coincidentally, it is also the common read on our campus um, this year. The reason I'm recommending it, though, is because it is it has been for me a real lifesaver in moving through the pandemic in a time when plants were upset and changed and put on the cutting room floor. This the the concept that she has around trying to find strategies that strategies that are emergent in the moment and really value laden has been really um, it's just been a lifesaver for me. It's really helped me stay hopeful and positive and not 
not kind of dwell in the morning of, you know, lost, lost futures. And so I, um, and in addition to that, I also really love to listen to things. And when I was reading this book, there wasn't an audio book and, but I did stumble across an unofficial audio book that is on YouTube. And it is so great because it is collectively read by a group of people that came together over a weekend. And so they read sections of it and then discuss it and then read sections of it and discuss it. It was just a really lovely way to, to hear the book. And I wanted to just take a minute to read the 10 core principles that Adrienne Marie Brown puts in her book as kind of the, the core of it. And they're short. Small is good. Small is all. The large is a reflection of the small. Change is constant. Be like water. There is always enough time for the right work. There is a conversation in the room that only these people at this moment can have. Find it. Never a failure. Always a lesson. Trust the people. If you trust the people, they become trustworthy. Move at the speed of trust. Focus on critical connections more than critical mass. Build the resilience by building the relationships. Less prep, more presence. What you pay attention to grows. And I feel like it's an it's exact encapsulation of what we were trying to do with the book. Oh, that is just amazing. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm pressing by as we speak. Wait, well, I'm going to press pause. No, just kidding. All right, Karen, what would you like to recommend for us? And thank you, Julia, so much for yours. I know, Julia, that was fabulous to be reminded of those again. My recommendation is probably going to seem a little odd, but I am recommending walking. I looked back over this, these, uh, you know, this time of the pandemic. And I think that that has helped me so, so much. And besides the walking and getting out in the air and the beauty and all of that that you're able to observe, it's also the time when I listen to podcasts, mm -hmm. including this one. And um, just, I don't know, it's really changed my life, the doing the two together. So Old school, I know lots of people have said it for decades, but uh, eons maybe, but that's my recommendation. Oh, I love that recommendation. Earlier today, I was feeling the crunch of just trying to fit too many things in the day and I'm not where I need to be for tomorrow, et cetera, et cetera. And I thought there is nothing more important I could do today than take a walk. So I'm happy to report that I already did that. So that's, I mean, look, I'm already taking you up on your recommendation. It, it, I mean, it's everything, right? It can it can completely change a mindset for sure. Yeah, love it. All right, thank you to the four of you for writing such a important work. Thank you for all of your collaboration and your generosity in sharing it with us. And I'm walking away from this conversation even more hopeful than when I finished reading your book. So just thank you for this. And I hope people will... Uh, go and find out more and um, follow up at the Binti Trilogy Looks Good. These are all, <laughs> you've given us so much to consider. So just thank you again for your time today. Thanks for having thank us. You. Thank you. It's been delightful. We really appreciate it. Thank you once again to Carolyn, Cynthia, Julia, and Karen for joining me on today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. And thanks to all of you for listening to today's episode. 
If you'd like to check out the show notes for today's episode, they're over at teachinginhighered.com slash 391. And if you don't want to have to remember to go look at them or look at them in your podcast catcher app, you can just subscribe to the weekly update at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. And those show notes will come into your email once a week, along with some other recommendations that don't show up on the show in addition to the ones that do. So head on over to teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe to subscribe today. And thanks for being a part of the Teaching in Higher Ed community.